Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The New Statesman. I'm Rachel. I'm Freddie. And I'm Zoe. And this is the New Statesman's political podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing departures and arrivals, the very recent resignation of Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, and also Nadine Dorries' dramatic exit as an MP for Mid-Bedfordshire after weeks of mounting pressure. Why have they left and who will replace them? I'm Rachel Cunliffe, Associate Political Editor of The New Statesman, and joining me in the studio, I have Freddie Hayward and Zoe Grunewald. Mainly in this podcast, we're going to talk about Nadine Doris and Mid-Bedfordshire and what this by-election means for Rishi Sunak. But before we do, breaking news, Ben Wallace has resigned as Defence Secretary, which is not that uh, unexpected, given that he said he was he was going to. And we have a new Defence Secretary, in the form of Grant Shapps, who has had quite a number of jobs this year, hasn't he, Freddie? This is his fifth. This is his fifth cabinet position this year uh, in the last 12 months, although he was Home Secretary just for six days Mm. during the the Liz Truss era. What do we think? Expected? Unexpected? I don't think he was on the list of candidates about a week ago or two weeks ago, so I think it is unexpected in that regard. But it's worth noting Grant Shapps is a big uh, Sunak loyalist, um, he supported him in the leadership election. Um, so I think what Rishi Sunak is doing here, because Ben Wallace wanted to go, he's brought in one of his allies who doesn't have the same clout around Whitehall that Ben Wallace did to request uh, defence funding increases, for instance. So you're basically seeing Sunak consolidate his cabinet. I think the other thing worth noting is that Grant Shapps is actually quite a good communicator and, you know, from a low bar amongst the, the cabinet, but he is generally quite good at interviews, uh, good at speaking to the media. Defence Secretary isn't that prominent in the domestic political scene. It's not like he's going to be out every single day talking about the NHS or talking about uh, climate change. He was the Energy and Net Zero Secretary in the new department the Rishi Sunak set up. So he's going to be travelling the world, uh, mostly focusing on Ukraine, as Wallace did, rather than being a prominent advocate for the government on the the morning news round uh, and within the media. The other thing worth noting is that we've gone from someone with the stature of Ben Wallace who, let's remember, was mooted as a candidate for NATO General Secretary. That just speaks to the fact that he was, whatever you think of him, uh, respected around the world, in part because of his support for Ukraine, to someone with Grant Shapps' stature, which which is uh, lesser, you could say. (laughs) Um, It's very diplomatic of you. I'm trying my best. Um, so that's just that's interesting as well. And I mean, I think it, one thing to note, and it's, it's slightly less Westminster focused, but it'll be interesting to see how 
our allies around the world, America, Ukraine, welcome Grand Shaps because animals has been such a, a core part of British foreign, foreign policy for the past two, three years. Yeah, I think that is interesting in that you've laid out the political case very well. Rishi Sunak wanted a, an ally there, somebody he could trust, and that is what Grant Chaps fulfills. But I have seen a number of comments, and my phone has been sort of blowing up with uh, fury from the defence community that we now have a defence secretary at a time when Britain is, OK, we're not at war, but when defence and security is more of a of a key issue yeah. than it's been for, for, for a generation. You have a defence secretary who doesn't really have any defence experience, doesn't seem to care that much about defence and has sort of worked his way around various government departments without showing any sort of expertise in that area. I guess the question, Zoe, is who else could he have chosen and what does this really mean for the wider, more extensive reshuffle, reset that we were promised that Sunak would be undertaking this autumn? So I think other candidates that were sort of suggested, um, I mean, people were talking a lot about Liam Fox last night and obviously Liam Fox had previously been Defence Secretary, um, so had that knowledge behind him and that those expertise, although obviously the way he went out wasn't from the role wasn't particularly in a blaze of glory. Um, I think other candidates that people maybe thought about, someone like Penny Morden, she's got the defence briefing behind her. She's seen as quite a strong figure there. Um, but we've seen Sunak repeatedly try and put some distance between himself and Penny. He gave a leader of the house, which some people thought was maybe a bit of a snub because it's actually quite sort of low level in the government position. Um, and obviously one of the reasons that is is because people think she tends to be quite a good candidate for Tory leader. So there he might want to put some distance in terms of what it means for Sunak and, and a kind of wider reshuffle, I think the fact that Sunak's rewarding loyalty rather than expertise is quite important. Obviously, we're looking to win an election next year. Sunak needs his best people behind him in terms of their support for him. Um, I think there's also probably a sense that these people won't be in the role for that long because probably we're going to see a change of government. So what he really needs is to keep people behind him he can trust. And it's interesting to look at who replaced Grant Shapps as well. So obviously we've got Claire Catino now, who was Children's Minister. Mm, tell, us, a, tell us about her. Yeah, so Claire's an interesting one. So she's part of the One Nation Tory caucus and she's seen as a bit of a rising star. Again, Sunak loyalist. Yeah. And she's seen as quite impressive, I think, quite up and coming. She's um, she's quite new. I think she's, she's 2019. 2019. She's the first of the 2019 intake mm -hmm. to get a cabinet position. Yeah. Um, and she was a spad before that in the Treasury when Sunak was... Uh, Chief Economic Secretary to the Treasury. Yeah, so she's very much, a, again, a Sunak loyalist. What I think is interesting that uh, Claire Coutinho, Children's Minister, has now been moved to uh, net zero and environment, which um, is an interesting brief because obviously she's gone from being Minister for Children to overseeing a policy area that's overwhelmingly of the interest and impacting young people. Um, and we've seen Sunak U-turn a little bit on that. So it'll be interesting to see, I think, how she approaches that, having previously advocated for the interests of children and young people, how she's going to balance that as uh, Sunak and the Tories sort of backpedal a little bit on their net zero and green policies. So I think she's quite, she's an interesting choice for the role and it'll be, it'll be interesting to see more of her because this will be a very public facing role as we as we go on. We know net zero and green policies are going to be at the forefront of the next election. It's going to almost be a bit of a culture war. So it'll be interesting to see how she responds to that because it would be a tough, tough gig, I think. It's also another woman in Sunak's cabinet and he has faced criticism for uh, the, the lack of gender diversity mm -hmm. there and, and the last reshuffle or the, when Alex Chalk became Justice Secretary, there was kind of, oh, another man in it. And obviously that's not the key consideration, but I think he will be thinking about 
optics to a certain extent. It's interesting you mentioned Penny Morden because she was writing an article last week about net zero and energy security and there was a moment there where I thought oh maybe she could get the gig but I think you're absolutely right he's trying to yeah not not give her a platform give her a sword and keep her away from a sword and a hat yeah give her a sword and a hat and she'll be she'll be fine yeah the MPs do enjoy her position as leader of the house they like seeing her and she has quite a good combative session on every Thursdays that was quite well attended because what, she the, does so well. The Tory MPs like seeing her. Is that is that is that yeah, your line she, of analysis? <laughs> well, she's a very good performer in the House of Commons. On Catino, the other thing, uh, yeah, definitely, uh, the other thing worth noting is that she, um, because she's now promoted, she's going to be a much bigger player in uh, the party after the next election. Mm-hmm. I mean, these reshuffles are really important because they're basically rearranging the hierarchy within the party. And now she's got more clout, she'll have more experience. As you say, Rachel, she'll be the first the first person from the 2019 intake who reaches cabinet. And that means she's going to have more say uh, in where the party goes mm-hmm. um, after the next election. And she is, uh, you know, as I said before, a One Nation Tory, a moderate. So it's increasing the number of moderates there as people are worried the party's shifting to the right. It gives that kind of... Yeah, you know, that sense that the she's a Brexiteer as well, it's worth noting. Um, yeah, she's very much within that sort of Sunak professional managerialism, ex-KPMG. Oh yeah, she's got the same Oxford, Oxford yeah. Yeah. Merrill Lynch, yeah, yeah. So she does have that Brexit, but with that veneer of uh, Remainism, as we've talked about in the past. Vibes, Remainer, Remainer vibes. As we mentioned, Ben Wallace's departure was not a surprise. We knew it was coming, we just didn't know when. And another person whose resignation has been pending over the summer is Nadine Doris. We'll be discussing her scathing letter, including the very specific attack on Rishi Sunak's shoes, after the break. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. We have been talking for 78 days about when she would actually stand down uh, and what might happen in that by-election in mid-Bedfordshire. Even so, even expecting it, that letter that she sent uh, or or that she published in in the mail, that was pretty explosive, even for people who were expecting something quite explosive, wasn't it? Yeah, completely. I think it was quite well put, actually. Uh, Lots of the arguments uh, resonated. Um, For instance, she made the point that Sunak and Trust, actually, but she, she, it was directed towards Sunak, has completely abandoned the 2019 manifesto. We saw that first with Trust when she tried to create a project around low taxes and growth. 
not really uh, what the 2019 manifesto, which was, was about, which is much more focused on Brexit, um, higher funding for public services, you know, the, the policies on police and uh, hospitals and things like that. And then Trust tried to create her own project that failed. Sunak's not even spoken about um, some of the issues and policies that have been delivered since 2019. Remember the... I think it was in March that they finally reached their target to hire 20,000 more police officers. That was a key commitment in the 2019 manifesto. Happened. Didn't Didn't really mention it. I think he didn't... I don't think there was even a press conference. I can't remember. There was nothing. It wasn't, okay, look, we've actually delivered on what we promised we would do. So what? therefore, what's he trying to achieve? It's something... I think it's just um, him basically restating the duties of government and waiting until he's uh, delivered on those priorities before he sets out a vision. Each one of them has tried to create something new. The risk, I think, though, is that the 2019 manifesto is extremely successful. Um, it's part of the reason, obviously, Brexit was the, the key reason, but it was part of the reason that Boris Johnson did so well in 2019. It's a risk to abandon that. Zoe, what stood out for you in particular from that letter and from some of the, the claims and the accusations and the language that she used? Well, I thought what was really interesting and is interesting about Nadine Dorries generally, is that she picked on Sunak's wealth and richness and his appearance. So she talked about his shoes. She said, You flashed your gleaming smile in your Prada shoes and Savile Row suit from behind the camera, but you just weren't listening. Yeah. It's, It's interesting because this is, we know, a charge that is levied against Sunak a lot, which is, is he just too out of touch? Is he too managerial? Is he too Goldman Sachs? Is he too rich and wealthy to understand what the majority of people in this country are thinking and feeling during a cost of living crisis? And she's picked on that. She's drawn it out. She knows it's going to be spread across the country. People are going to read that and they're going to think it. But what's also interesting is that she's a long-term Johnson loyalist. Now, Johnson, it has loads of privilege and wealth. You know, he was... Eton, Oxford, all the, you know, he was totally, uh, he's totally an example of that as well. Yet somehow she remains loyal to Johnson and doesn't levy the same criticisms at him that she levies at Sunak. So I think it's really interesting. And it kind of gets at this, this thing that Sunak's really been trying to shake off and not very successfully, which is that he can understand what people in the country are feeling. And I think if I were a uh, Labour campaigner or a Liberal Democrat campaigner in Nadine Dorries' ex-constituency, I would be printing off that letter and putting it through people's letterboxes because I think it it's one of those things people remember. It's a great line. Um, I'm sure he <laughs> well, hates lots of great it. lines. Yeah, yeah it, it is a great line. And I think it will uh, punch him right in the gut, really. I think it will be quite, quite, um, quite destructive for Sunak's appearance. There are some other lines that I have drawn out from this letter. Since you took office a year ago, the country is run by a zombie parliament where nothing meaningful has happened. What have you done? What have you achieved? You hold the office of prime minister unelected without a single vote, not even from your MPs. You have no mandate from the people and the government is adrift. You have squandered the goodwill of the nation. And for what? We should get on the podcast. We should. I mean, that is a little bit hypocritical, isn't it? For a a woman who hasn't showed up in Parliament for I don't know how many days now. Um, I mean, she said she's still working for her constituents day in, day out. And I'm sure there are still constituency surgeries going on and she's replying to less. Mm -hmm. Well, I I don't know that, but I would presume that's what she means when she says that. But I mean, I think a lot of people would read that and say, well, it might be a zombie parliament, Nadine, but where have you been? You've not been there raising the banners and getting everyone in and, you know, asking questions and lobbying your your ministers, have you? So I think, you know, that is a little bit hypocritical. But I mean, it's it's a, another great soundbite. It's, it's punchy, right? So I, I think this is the, the really interesting thing about this letter is that she's a very divisive mm-hmm. figure. Uh, Labour and the left 
don't like her. Lots of people in the Conservative Party don't like her. Um, she obviously aligned herself with the Boris Johnson faction and takes no responsibility for mm. any of the, the chaos that ensued as a result of that. Yet at the same time, it's hard to read this and not agree with the points that she's making. Like the, the, the accusations she's levelling at Sunak are ones that lots of people, lots of voters, lots of people within the Conservative Party will go, yeah, actually, that's that's fair and that's, that resonates, even if they don't necessarily agree with or like the person making them. Yeah, completely. I mean, it does sometimes descend into conspiracy theory, though. There's one part where she basically speaks about the deep state and the Rishi Sunak cabal that got rid of Boris Johnson, which I'm not sure is necessarily true, given that the uh, rebellion that uh, got rid of Johnson within the parliamentary party was largely organic. It was quite leaderless. There were lots of senior Tory MPs during those six months basically holding up in their hands and saying, well, you know, uh, I've done this before. I don't want to do it again. We'll wait and see what happens. So I don't think it was so much of a cabal. It was much more Boris Johnson bringing these scandals upon himself, uh, which she obviously doesn't reference. And the other thing to worth noting is that it was Sajid Javid actually who resigned first on that day. And then Sunak came, I think it was within 15 minutes to be fair, or, or half an hour or whatever it was. Uh, but it wasn't Sunak who unleashed the downfall. Maybe that was maybe that was planned so that six months or a year down the line, I would say things like this. But <laughs> yeah. um, it wasn't Rishi Sunak who necessarily orchestrated the, the coup that got rid of Boris Johnson. It was definitely himself. She goes quite deep on the deep state mm. thing. Very Trumpian. Yeah, exposes how the democratic process at the heart of our party has been corrupted. Um, a dark story emerged, which grew ever more disturbing with every person I spoke to. She says she's going to write a book about what she uncovered. She uh, I think that's going to be absolutely fascinating. 28th or 27th of September it's out, which is perfectly timed for a Conservative Party conference. And, and around the time of the, the by-election, yeah. which is now going to be due. Yeah, I think you might get the by I, I was being to Labour sources about when they think uh, the by-election will be. We'll expect the uh, the writ uh, for the election to be moved next week and then it's 28 days. So, But we obviously have um, conference season in yeah. between that. Uh, so Labour are basically going, OK, we'll think it will come after the conference season unless the Conservative Party wants to be extremely uh, cheeky and have it during Labour conference, which I think is unlikely. So we'll probably see it in November. It's a bit of a risk for the Conservatives if they have it before Conservative Party conference because if they were to lose it, uh, what what would that do for Sunak? Although, as she points out in this letter, she has got a majority of twenty four and a half thousand. So, what what, what do you reckon on who's going to win on 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 what we're going to see in the next couple of weeks? Well, I would. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of wrangling between the Lib Dems and Labour over this seat, um, and I think it'll be really interesting to see what the eventual result is. I have a feeling Labour might have it, but I think it is it's going to be a good challenge from the Lib Dems. I think it would be interesting if they had... Um, this is a great thing for, for the Labour Party conference to have, actually. Yes, another by-election, if they're feeling confident. They can really zero in on this. They can make lots of comments about it. They can make statements about it. And they can talk about how, if they win this, what, what it means for the party. You know, they can really set their stall out on a national stage about it. Um, so it's it's really tricky timing. And obviously, um, Doris did that deliberately because she wants to cause as much disruption and concern Sunak as much as possible. You know, she wants to go out in a in a blaze, basically. Um, but it will be interesting to see how um, the Lib Dems pitch their candidate, how Labour pitch their candidate, on what basis. We saw, you know, the three by-elections before 
where, when were they now? June, July? <laughs> July. July, the, the three by-elections. Time, time ceases to have any meaning over the it summer. It does. But they were all sort of quite different campaigns. So, you know, Uxbridge was very local-based, very much kind of almost this referendum on ULA. It's very local issue-based. Um, the Lib Dems, again, campaigned in um, summer... Summerton and Froome. Froome, yeah, on a um, a very kind of local basis as well. And then we saw Keir Matter's um, victory in Selby as one that was very much kind of based on being a sort of refresh of a party and taking back the red wall and, and speaking for that kind of constituency as well. So it'll be interesting to see how the Lib Dems and Labour focus their campaigns here and what it says about the Conservatives and whether it says anything about Nadine Dorries as well, whether they'll focus in on that or try and draw a line under it and present their vision as separate parties. Yes, Summerton and Prim and Selby and Ainsley were majorities, Conservative majorities of 19 and 20,000, which got overturned by the Lib Dems in one seat and Labour in the other. This obviously is 24, 25 thousand so it's it it's high but in both of those seats it was Labour in Selby and it was the Lib Dems in Somerton and sort of the other parties kind of backed out a bit there's there's no sign is there that for for this one Labour and the Lib Dems are going to come to an agreement and and no not at the moment anyway no both of them have been campaigning quite a lot uh, Labour have been campaigning in the constituencies from uh, the day that Nadine Doris first said she was going to resign um, and yeah you're right it's 24,000 uh, it would be the biggest by-election that Labour's ever won. Um, So it's a massive obstacle for them to uh, get over. I think that's worth remembering in the spin ward to come. If there's a lot of expectation that Labour win the constituency and then they don't, people interpret it as a a referendum on how Keir Starmer's doing in his chance for re-election. I'm not sure that's necessarily... Uh, helpful. The Conservatives should win this and that should be your base level and then we can look at the changes from there. And I think Ben Walker, our data journalist, who obviously runs Britain Elects, has the Conservatives predicted to to win in in that seat currently. And we'll get him on the podcast very soon uh, in in the run up to that by-election to discuss it further. But it's still going to be a headache for Sunak, right? Definitely. But the other thing to note is that he's got one of his biggest critics out of Parliament. So that's, I mean, that's why he started goaded. But he, her book, but her book, Freddie. Yeah, her book, her book will be <laughs> awful, but um, she'll have a, a lesser platform to promote her book now she's outside of Parliament uh, than she would have anyway. I mean, she, I think she's still doing a talk TV show every mm. Friday. Yeah, um, she's she's not, not she's not going quietly. Not that I'm pretending not to watch it every week, but um, <laughs> no, yeah, she'll still have a platform. But yeah, he doesn't want her within the party. But of course, the by-election is very annoying. I would agree with that. I think also when a candidate, when an MP goes out under these kind of circumstances, when they've sort of left their posting, deserted their constituency, annoyed a bunch of people on the way quite often that um, is more beneficial for other parties because they can kind of capitalise on, look, she abandoned you, you know, she didn't care about you. But, you know, it, it will be interesting to see whether people sympathise with her and how people feel about Sunak because that really is what this would become about, you know. Do people forgive Sunak or do people forgive Nadine? I'm going to just end with a line at the end of her letter where she says about Sunak, you have abandoned the fundamental principles of conservatism. History will not judge you kindly. Tell us what you really think, Nadine. <laughs> it's just been announced that Nadine Doris's book is now going to be released on the 9th of November in the past 10 minutes. <laughs> I said 27th, 28th, which it was 10 minutes ago. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. If you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and type your reply. 
Or if you're watching on YouTube, just leave a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Cunliffe, and my colleagues, Freddie Hayward and Zoe Grunwald. We'll be back tomorrow to answer your questions in our next episode, You Ask Us. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes.